Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Don George. First of all, you're going to love this guy. He's the foremost travel writer on the planet. He's the author of the award-winning anthology, The Way of Wanderlust. Not Wanderlust, like the Jennifer Aniston movie, but Wanderlust. The best travel writing of Don George and how to be a travel writer. He's one of the best-selling travel writers and guides in the world. His most recent book is all about how he found ways to travel during the age of COVID before our airplanes got so full and so expensive. Currently the editor-at-large for National Geographic Travel. He's also worked for the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner, Salon, and even Lonely Planet. Don's visited more than 90 countries. Nine, imagine 90 countries. And written more than 1,000 articles for print and online publications. In the time it would take me to list all his awards and his accolades, I could take my own trip around the world. So let's get right into it. The most interesting and sweetest guy you're going to ever meet, Don George. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Don George. Welcome to the Retire Sooner podcast. Thank you very much. I missed your talk today here at TravelCon. We're in Memphis. And if you're listening as a Retire Sooner listener, you're gonna, you've are gonna you heard a couple of these spaced out over time, but you'll still hear the honking in the background. And there's a <laughs> right. garbage truck that came by. Nice. But it, it makes it's appropriate for a travel conference because we're totally. traveling. Memphis was a real shocker to me. It kind of feels like going back in time. Yeah. Never been here. Yeah. Had some of the best barbecue I've had. And... Uh, it's been really kind of a magical place. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you're kind of the world's foremost evangelist for travel. <laughs> I, I am, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and and the you know what do you, you came to TravelCon to teach the travel industry folks right about travel writing right right and um, maybe we just start with your early travels. Like, how did you get the bug early on to do this? I. So I went to university and studied literature mostly, but kind of minored in creative writing. And I thought, all right, I think I'll go to graduate school and I'll become a professor of literature because all my role models basically up until that time were professors. Yeah. And that seemed like the, the easy thing to do or the, the logical thing to do. Um, but then I went to uh, Princeton and uh, Princeton had something called the Summer Work Abroad Program in France for people who were studying French. and. Partly I was studying French literature. So I applied for this program and I got it. And after graduation, I went and lived in Paris for three months. And I had a moment in Paris during those three months when, I mean, I'll never forget it. I was staying in my apartment and I would go down to the Rue de Rivoli and I would go out and I would walk to my office 
And maybe about two weeks into my stay, I went down to Rue de Rivoli and I was walking as I always did. And I just kind of stopped and looked around me. And I was like, France is all around me. Mm. Everywhere I look, there's Frenchness. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, so after this year abroad, I'm going to go back to a university and sit in a really dusty, musty, fusty classroom and study old books. And, and why am I going to do that? And I thought, this is the classroom for me. Mm. Paris is the classroom. I'm looking around going, this is where I want to study. And at that moment, I didn't really know that I could make a living as a travel writer. I didn't even know that was something you did. What year was this? This was 1975. And you were French at the time. Where were you as far as the language? I was okay. I was, um, I was great reading mm -hmm. and kind of stumbling, fumbling, bumbling, you know, speaking. But I was uh, living with a French family, and they didn't speak English. So I had to bumble, stumble, fumble my way through. And I learned really quickly that it's okay to make a fool of yourself. I mean, it's actually good to make a fool of yourself. Either you can be silent and get, achieve nothing, or you yeah. can make a fool of yourself and achieve a lot of things. Yeah. And so I became adept at making a fool of myself, and I've been very good at that my whole life. <laughs> and uh, so it was just really fantastic. I, I loved Paris. I fell in love with Paris. Um, I fell in love with my family. It was all really amazing. And from there, I'd arranged, so I graduated from Princeton, and I'd arranged after How Paris. did you do that? Did you stay? How were you able to graduate? Did you have to come back for many years? Uh, so this was after my, so after my four years uh, at Princeton, they allowed me to do this um, program abroad, even though I had, technically I was no longer a student, but they still allowed me to do the program. Okay. So I graduated, went to Paris, and then my spring of senior year, I managed to get a fellowship to teach in Greece for a year, an academic year. Went to Paris for the summer, went to Greece for the year, taught at Athens College, and just went, oh, I, the world is so amazing. I just love it. I just want to kind of somehow find a way to be out in the world all the time. Didn't quite still understand that, so I ended up going to graduate school in creative writing rather than literature. I thought, I'm going to try to be a writer. Somehow. Where did you go? Where was graduate school, though? Uh, a place called Hollins College in Virginia, in okay. Hollins, Virginia. Small, wonderful, creative writing graduate program. Did that. Graduated and still thought, I don't know what to do with my life. How am I going to do what I really want to do, which is travel? I got another uh, Princeton fellowship to go live in Japan for two years on a teaching fellowship. So I went to Japan for two years and uh, just further reinforce that feeling of this is incredible where were you from where where where's uh, your hometown connecticut okay and did you travel much as a kid or was it my parents traveled for sure but um i would say the furthest we went was canada we would go up to nova not scotia very not very far <laughs> um no even passports involved at that time right. so we would go to we went to virginia we went to canada we went to new york state upstate new york but that was kind of the yeah as far as we went but they love travel, and, um, and so it was kind of in my blood, I think. And I went to Japan for two years, fell in love with Japan, totally. So opposite sides of the world. So you yeah. fell in love with France, yeah. then you fell in love with Japan. I fall in love easily. Yeah. <laughs> you're, e you're, e you're a sucker for I'm these sucker cultures. Yeah. for these cultures. I don't blame you. They're but they really, well, yeah. you know, this is the other thing is I'm learning here at TravelCon, and I'm... And it, I, the first time I've even remembered that I went to Finland for a stint, did a Scandinavian and Russia trip when I was 12, 13. Wow. And I remember when you're staying at houses, 
they are the education as opposed right. to staying in some amazing totally. hotel or right. anywhere. So, so that right. you and when you traveled, you were in the culture pretty much immediately. Yeah, exactly. Thrust into the culture. And, um, when I was in Paris, there were other Princeton students there who tended to hang out together. And I said, I don't want to do that. I'm in Paris. Why would I yeah. want to hang out with Americans? So I just kind of really embraced French culture. And there was a son in my family, my French family, who adopted me kind of and introduced me to all his friends. And suddenly I was being invited on weekends to Normandy. And one guy had a private plane and he said, where do you want to go? And so we went for a little ride in his plane. And suddenly I was just... Uh, Frenchified. I became a, a French citizen, kind of, with yeah. all these French people, and it was fantastic. And so I got to Japan and, and wanted to do the same thing. And you know, it's a lot more difficult in Japan. It's a much more it's much more um, isolating kind of culture. When you're a foreigner, it's really obvious that you're a foreigner, and yeah. you're not immediately embraced. But I worked my way into the culture. Yeah. How long did it take to do that? How long did it take to break into an Asian culture? There's a new show that I stumbled on, I think it's HBO Max, I can't remember, but it's, it's something like Tokyo Vice, and it's about a, a very American-looking, tall, huh. kind of cool American guy that went there and became ultra-fluent after three or four years and became a newspaper writer within Japan. And, and it's, it's this amazing story where he sticks out like such a sort right. of thumb. Like, even walking in the street, he's like three heads above everybody else. And it really yeah. is, it seems really tough to break into that Asian culture. Yep. Is it that, really is. but but I've also heard that the Asian culture are warm people. So what's the, right. what, how does, how do you break in? How long did it take you? So it took me six months just to feel comfortable there. It really took me six. I was on a two-year fellowship took me six months to one morning, literally one morning, I woke up and it was as if overnight all of the pieces had fallen into place. And I kind of went, oh, I get it. I get What Japan. did you get? What was that in Asia? The biggest thing I got was that being independent is not a good thing. You're not um, praised if you stick out differently from other people. And that took me a really long time. You know, in America were raised to be independent. The idea, I can do it myself. So celebrated. That's a real, right? That's a really yeah. great thing. In Japan, if you say, I can do it myself, that's like slapping your friends and you know, your group in the face. Huh. You're saying, I don't need you guys. In Japan, needing the group is what it's all about. The Japanese really exist on this, in this level of, we can do this together. And if you try to stick out, People look at you like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to be part of our group? Oh. And I learned this early as a teacher because you'd, I'd ask a question. You know, in an American classroom, you ask a question. It's like, teacher, I, got, I know the answer. You raise your hand. I know the answer. I know the answer. I would do that in Japan, and everybody would be like looking down, no hands raised, just sort of quiet. Don't call on me, teacher. Don't call on me, teacher. Nobody wanted to stand out. They have a saying in Japan, the nail that sticks up gets beaten down. Oh, well, then, so how does school work there then? then? So what I did was I would group the students into group, groups of three or four. And then I could ask a question and the group could raise their hand. And that was okay. The group can answer the question. Fascinating. Yeah, it was really And that then permeates all the way through the business culture as well, then. It's got all the way through. All the layers, every aspect of society. Totally. And you've had, so you spent two years there. How did you learn Japanese? I learned 
some Japanese. I didn't take any. So that any is classes. really tough to learn. Yeah, it's really tough to learn. Yeah, I always had a notebook with me, and I was always writing in my notebook. I was just listening and writing things down. But I didn't take any formal classes. But I did that, and then I met a Japanese woman and fell in love, and that helped. And that helped. Yeah, that helped. We would go out on dates, and she would have her dictionary, and I'd have my dictionary, and we'd be kind of talking. Oh, so back how was and her forth. English when you met her? It was good, but it was good. It was way, I mean, a million better times better than my Japanese. It was good enough that we could have conversations, but they were very rudimentary kinds of yeah. conversations. Her English got better and better. My Japanese got a little bit better. Um, and she's my wife now. Yeah. So we stayed together. When did together. you get married? Did you get married there or did you get married in We the got States? married. So I was there from 77 to 79. We ended up getting married in 82. And we had one wedding ceremony in Berkeley, California at a congregational church because I was raised congregational. And then we had a second wedding ceremony in the Japanese Shinto traditional sh ceremony in her hometown in Japan. And then she decided to move here she or did you guys here. ever live? Did you ever live there after that? No. So I was there on fellowship for two years, moved back to the States. We kind of went back and forth seeing each other, but we actually weren't together for a couple of years. And then we got together again in 82 and and move and we decided to settle in the states because that's where I was working at that time. So, so you got married, and then when did your Kilimanjaro experience happen? Uh, <laughs> what year was that? That happened in '76. So the, oh, this is before we before went to all of Japan, right? I would I'd been in Greece. I had decided to go to creative writing graduate school. My fellowship ended in Greece. I had three months before graduate school started. I had two Greek students whose families actually lived in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. They were big sort of shipping magnets there. And they asked me and another, another teaching fellow at the university, another one who was on the same program as me, if we'd like to come and visit them for the summer. And we said, yeah, sure, of course we of would. Of course we would, yeah. <clears throat> so we, we went there, we went on a safari. They did all these great things for us. But on the safari, we were bouncing along the savanna and the clouds cleared in front of us and shining on the horizon was Kilimanjaro. Hey, that's kind of a big mountain. It's a big mountain. And my friend said, oh man, that's Kilimanjaro. Wouldn't it be wonderful to like climb that? And I looked at him and I said, yeah, definitely. Let's we should do, do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, at the time, well, you're what, 20? 20. 21 yeah. or two or okay. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So suddenly like, Four days later, we were at the base of Kilimanjaro. The, the parents of these two wonderful students had arranged a whole climbing expedition for us. How long did they Don't people train for that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yes, they is do. Is it like a life's There's, work to go? Right. Hey, guys, we're just going to go to Kilimanjaro, <laughs> and next we're going to space. What was the – how did it go? How was the climb? And did it you was make intense. it up, or did you make it, it like it. a quarter of the way Made up? it up. Did you really? Yeah, it's five days total. Um, painful unbelievably painful. Um, but what I remember, it was beautiful. It was painful. What I really remember best is that when I finally reached the summit, my friend and I, we reached the summit and I was on the top of Kilimanjaro and I was thinking, this is, you know, one of the most spectacular moments of my life. And really all I could do, I was doubled over in pain. I, my lungs were not getting enough oxygen. Right. So the oxygen was, oh, oxygen what's, was what's so the peak? thin. What is the 19,340 feet. So you're that is way massive. up there. It is massive. And my lungs are going, we don't, we don't got anything here. And you're not here. throwing up from altitude sickness at the time? I wasn't throwing up. Okay. But I was so bent over because I was in such pain. And I kept forcing my eyes to kind of, my head to like, I want to look and see what's out here. And yet I'm so in such pain. Yeah. But you know, 
I was also saying to myself, this is a moment you don't want to ever forget. You know, make use of this. You're on the top of Kilimanjaro. Enjoy it. So I made myself look around and pay, see what I was seeing. But it was amazing. So and it's another ingredient for you to end up just in this world of the world is my classroom. I'm like, Absolutely. You, you go to France and you're Kilimanjaro totally. and then you're in Tokyo. Yeah. Hey, y'all, it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the Retire Sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is going to pay you in retirement? If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How did you end up becoming a travel writer making a living doing this? Because this is before Insta. Right. <laughs> and before Facebook and before monetizing a website and before, like, we're talking a long time. A long time before. ago, right. Today, it seems kind of doable. I, I right. can see it. You can almost say, oh, I get it. If you've got good enough pictures and you're adventurous enough, you're getting enough following, you make a living doing this. Back then, that wasn't like, it concept. was you and Fromer like, <laughs> right. hey, let's, let's, you know, let's go wherever. <laughs> right. So... I still didn't really think about travel writing as a career. I wanted to be a poet, and I'd gone to graduate school to write poetry. That still seems hard to make a living to being a poet. <laughs> so, yeah, right. My parents were thrilled when I said I wanted to be a poet. <laughs> oh, great. Um, but in graduate school, so I was doing poetry, but I took a nonfiction writing class, and I wrote a story about climbing Kilimanjaro because that seemed like a really good nonfiction yeah. thing to write. And all I did, I didn't even think about getting it published. I just wanted to write a really great story about this amazing experience I'd had. So I wrote that story, you know, turned it in. And then the summer after that, when I'd gotten my fellowship to go to Japan, I wrote- Wait, turned, wait hold on, turned in the story where? Uh, so my graduate, graduate school. Program. So at okay. Holland's graduate program, uh, got my degree in poetry writing, but did this nonfiction writing class, wrote about Kilimanjaro for my homework assignment. And- um, then I got the Princeton in Asia fellowship to go to Tokyo. In the summer before I went to Tokyo, I was living in Connecticut at my parents' house. And I decided I would write to some editors in New York to say, I'm going to be in Tokyo for two years and I'd love to be like your Tokyo correspondent or something. Yeah. And of course, I wrote to the New Yorker and Harper's and the Atlantic Monthly and all these you know, ridiculously high-level publications. Some of them wrote back saying, um, you know, thank you very much, but uh, we just can't use you. Most of them wrote back saying, actually, we have like five Pulitzer Prize winners in Tokyo. So <laughs> we're good. We, we really don't need <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you so much for offering. But a few of them said, if you're going to be in New York before you go to Tokyo, stop by. We'd be happy to meet you. Yeah. 
one of the places that said that was Mademoiselle Magazine, which I read religiously, of course, right? I, right. I, I didn't really read huge Mademoiselle. Fan of Mademoiselle. Huge fan of Mademoiselle. Huge fan. I don't even know the what's in that. The fashion tips yeah. were really Is that what it is? Essential. Is, it kind of, is it fashion? I, I guess. I, but they had, Mademoiselle had something at that time called the, um, it was a summer editing program that college students could apply for. And I'd applied for it and made it to the next to the last round earlier in my time at Princeton. So they kind of knew me. I'd, I'd made it that far in that process. So I wrote to the person who, who is sort of in charge of that process, and she put me in touch with the travel editor. The travel editor said, let's, let's have lunch. So I brought my Kilimanjaro homework assignment as a writing sample. And after we had lunch together, I just left it with her and said, you know, just here's a sample of my writing. Yeah, just here's my Kilimanjaro it. Here's my Kilimanjaro yeah. story. No big deal. Yeah. Here's my Kilimanjaro story. <laughs> right. And then I got on a plane and went to Tokyo. And when I arrived at my apartment in Tokyo, this is 1977, there was a telegram for me from Mademoiselle Magazine saying, a hole opened up in our November issue, and we put your Kilimanjaro story in it. Hope you don't mind. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so, okay. so that was my first published story. And what did you get paid story. for that? $500. Oh, you did get Oh, that is a yeah, lot. Yeah, $500. Was that the light bulb of like that wait. was a huge light bulb because I'd been writing poetry and sending it to the New Yorker and they were not publishing my <laughs> poems. I don't know why. I would get these little tiny yellow squares of paper that were printed with "Thank you very much for your submission. We regret that it does not meet our needs." And I was like, "Okay." And then I I wrote one travel story and it got published in a national magazine. And I'm like, "Okay." So then I began to think about travel writing and I wrote a story for travel and leisure when I was based in Tokyo. And I began to write for the Japan Airlines in-flight magazine. And I was just, I think I might be able to do this. I don't really understand how I can do it, but so far, so good. When my fellowship ended, I came back to the States and I went to live in California. And this is a crazy long story that I will shorten, but it's how I really became a travel writer. I was living in California. I found out through a ridiculous series of serendipities I got invited on a press trip to Japan, and I met on that press trip a really great writer who lived right in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. The travel editor at the San Francisco paper had decided she was going to take a leave of absence. She called this woman I'd met on this press trip and said, I'm leaving the paper for a year. I wonder if you'd like to take my place. Huh. The woman said, I can't. I'm really, really busy, but I just got back from a press trip. I met this nice young man who just moved to the Bay Area. He seems like he'd be a really perfect fit for your job. And after they had that conversation, literally a half hour later, I called up the travel editor at the newspaper to ask about the status of a story that I'd submitted out of the blue. I did not expect the travel editor to answer the phone. I thought, you know, some assistant to the assistant would answer the phone. The travel editor picked up the phone and said, hello, this is Georgia Hess. She's a legendary travel editor. I kind of fainted. And I said, uh, Ms. Hess, uh, you, you don't know me. I'm the, the, the Don G -G George. And I sent you a story. And I'm just wondering what the status of the story is. And she said... I don't know anything about your story, Don George, but I would really like to meet you. I've just been talking with someone about you. I was just about to call. <laughs> and I fainted again. <laughs> wow. So and that's I, who this serendipitously, this worked. Totally serendipitously. And then you got the job. And I, so I, for a year, I took her place. Yeah. And I became a travel writer at the San Francisco newspaper, which people would have killed to have that job. I think about the travel writing continuum of here's where to go versus here's what I learned, like your right. Kilimanjaro story. What back then did you want people to learn from what you were writing about 
travel or places? And then how has that evolved over time? What do you want them mm. to learn now? Yeah, what a great question. Um, so with the Kilimanjaro story, I just wanted to recreate an adventure story. I wasn't thinking at all. I mean, I was writing it for homework, one, but... Um, <laughs> but it's so funny to hear the word homework. I know, right? like, I had to do my homework. Home, I did yeah. my homework, my graduate school homework. Yeah. Um, all I wanted was to write a great story, and I wanted my teacher to go, wow, this is fantastic. I felt like I, I was on, on the slope with you. Uh, then when I became a travel writer for the San Francisco paper, it was more of a balanced... I want people to understand the wonder and magic of this experience, but I also want them to understand if they wanted to do it themselves, how to do it. So it had to be, there had to be a practical component to it. Meaning if you want to go here. Right. Yeah. So like I wrote about, I think my very first story was going to Ixtapa and Zihuatanejo in Mexico. One was a real touristy place and the other was a little village right next door to the really touristy place. So I wrote about both of those places. And I wrote about what I loved about them and why I think it would be great for anybody to go there. And that was to kind either. of to either. Yeah. That was kind of the wonder and magic of it. And then I also wrote about if you wanted to go here, you should stay at this place and this is a great restaurant. And you should so I gave both of those sides of the story. This is what's wonderful and why you should think about going here. And if you do come here, this is where you should stay, this is where you should eat. And pretty much at the newspaper, that's what I did all the time. Yeah. Over time depending upon who I've been writing for, that's varied a little bit. I, I write a lot of essays that don't have any sort of service information at all. They're just about the, the wonder of an experience or the lesson that I learned or something like that. But then I'll also write more feature stories about a place. And part of the, part of the assignment for that is, well, if people want to go there, how do they do it? Where do they stay? And you know, what do they need to know? And so you talk about wanderlust, Right which is uh, kind of the cousin to wonderment. Mm -hmm. And you put that with travel and this is this wanderlust. I guess that's a word that you made that up. Is that, a, is that an English word? Or did you, it's a is German that a, word. Or but, is that but a he, Don George he, word? <laughs> I've adopted I've embraced it and made it my so, own. So it is a German word. It's a, it's a word. So it's a German word that has been in English for a pretty long time. So wanderlust. Right. Well, is, I guess love this, of travel. Yeah, the love of travel. Okay. Tell me about that project because that's a pro, that's a – You've written about this. Right. I mean, Wanderlust is sort of my the way of, name. The Way of Wanderlust, the way of Wanderlust is, is your, my book. Yeah. That's the title of my book, which is a collection of the, the best of Don George. Uh, it's about 36 stories. And um, Wanderlust, just for me, is what it's all about. In the, in the introduction of that book, I say travel is my religion. I really feel that. Travel for me is it's the thing I believe in. And I think it makes the world a better place. And I think that if we're going to find peace and harmony and understanding in the world, we got to travel and get out. And whoever, well, one of the things I say is, you know, whoever the sort of enemy du jour is, we've got to go meet that enemy. We've got to sit down and have dinner with them and go to the market and talk to them. And, and then we'll go, wait, we're not enemies. We both, we're human. We're all in this together. You know, one of the themes I've seen here with travel writers that have explored really explored the world. There is this thought that it is a very unscary world. Right. And I, I have not done a lot of travel in the last, call it 15 years, because I guess the reason I would say is that I've had four kids mm. and, you know, two jobs or three jobs. And it just, 
didn't feel like I could get away much. And so I haven't done a lot right. of travel. Right. And then I think back to when I was a kid and I had some opportunities to go some places. They, I, how, how wonderfully and educational that was. But the thought of a world that's really unscary mm. is a wonderful concept and newer for me because I've kind of been in the, and I've been in the media for a long time. And we are great at scaring people, <laughs> right. right? That's what we love. That's what you kind of have to do to stay in business. Right, right. And when you're a travel, someone like you have come champion the thought that it's not, that's the opposite of what it should be. Right. You've been to, I don't know what, 90, you know, yep, tell me, 90, tell me, 95. Tell me some uh, upside surprise. Like, what's a wonderful place that nobody ever goes to, or the most underrated place you've ever gone to, or the place you thought might be a little scary, but it really was so embracing? Wow. Um, it was like seven questions. Right. Pick and choose. One of the things that really occurs to me thinking about that is I, for a long, for six, seven years, I was at Lonely Planet, the, yeah. the guidebook people. I was the global travel editor for them and I was, their, you know, I was their global spokesperson. So I did a lot of talking about Lonely Planet. And one of the things I would always say is, at Lonely Planet, we want you to buy our guidebooks. We really appreciate that. But we also want you to leave our guidebook in your hotel room one day. We want you to go out and get lost. Because really getting lost is what travel is ultimately all about. Mm -hmm. And a sort of corollary, corollary of that that I would tell people is, so when you're in Paris, yes, go to the Eiffel Tower. Everybody does it. There's a reason why everybody does it. It's amazing. But then spend a morning wandering around the Eiffel Tower and wander into some little shops and just talk to the shopkeepers and just start making connections. And yes, you've seen the Eiffel Tower, but you know what's going to stick with you is that little shopkeeper you met after you went to the Eiffel Tower who brought out this piece of lace that her mother had made. And she's not selling it, but she wanted you to see it because you like lace and you're going to love this piece of lace. And suddenly you're communicating. And when you get back home and people say, how is Paris? You're going to say, not, I went to the Eiffel Tower. You're going to say, I met this almost amazing lace keeper. Whoa, that's who... so true. That is <laughs> right? so true. I remember going to one of those Lake Como towns called Bellagio. Mm -hmm. And the what I only yeah. thing I remember is that Lynn bought a this uh, patent white belt from one of these little shops and I remember the store owner like fit it to her. He's like, Oh, I'm going to cut it. I'm going to, I'm going to make it fit and put on a new buckle and the whole, like that uh, little process of that is like the most memorable thing of all of Lake right, Como. Right. And it was it literally wandering into some side shop. It wasn't yeah. very, it wasn't, didn't seem very touristy and it organically is like the most tangible memory of, where George Clooney lives. Right, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, we saw Clooney's house, but really it was the shop that right. was memorable. And that's when you go, the world's not scary. Yeah. I just had the most amazing meeting with this woman I would never otherwise have had the chance to meet. She's just like me. And the more you do that in different places, the more you realize we're all just human. We're all in this together. Do we travel like we used to? I mean, so you wrote about the COVID years, right? Yeah. That we had two and a half, two years plus. And, right. you know, it's the first time that I've traveled without a mask this past week on, on right. a plane. And right. the world feels pretty much fully, fully open. But tell me about the project about traveling during the years of COVID. Right. So I wrote a book called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. And what I did during the, during the pandemic was I just turned my travel writer mind to my home area. 
And I began to look at places all around me that I was so familiar with, with a traveler's eyes. Um, and suddenly a whole different place came to life for me. And I would, or, and I would do things that I thought I would do someday, but had never gotten around to doing, like walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, so Everybody, this is in San France. This is in San France. So, so you, you went from, hey, I live here to I'm traveling here? Exactly. In my brain, I was like, so if I didn't know this place, what would I see? What would I notice? What would I learn? And walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, I've crossed the Golden Gate Bridge a million times yeah. on, in a car. I never actually taken the time to stop and walk across it. You walk across the Golden Gate Bridge and an entirely different bridge happens to you. You get halfway across and you look up and you go, oh my God, some human being was here and they built this thing. And you like knock on the steel and you're like, somebody, this wasn't always here. Somebody set up on that shore and they somehow got out here and they stood right here and they were pounding a girder in. And that's what I'm standing on right now. All these human beings made this thing. And then they had to paint it. And then they had to paint it. <laughs> And I'd driven over it a million times and never really stopped to think about that. Suddenly, the bridge became this like sacred, wonderful, amazing place. And it just gave me a whole new perspective on it. And then I went to Muir Woods, which is a really wonderful old redwood grove. And, and it just was a new place to me. I, I felt its power and its sacredness in a way that when I thought of it as the place next door, it didn't quite feel that way. But when I thought of it as I'm a tourist, I may never come back here again. Let's really get into this place. It was so special. You know, you're such an advocate of travel and how important it is for our lives. I almost feel like asking you this question is like asking you about your favorite child. But as just a, if I'm listening to this, I would say, Wes, you've got to ask Don some like some of your favorite places. Right. Just, I got. I got. I'm sorry. I got to do that. <laughs> That's all right. And I know that there's been you've been all over the world, but. What are a couple of places that you really, really love that you would go back to or maybe you've continued to go back to? Yeah. I mean, the, th the three, I have to say, are the one places that I lived. Mm -hmm. So Paris is, Paris is a home for me. I go back to Paris and I remember the, the young guy who went there originally and kind of fell in love and went, I think I want to be like a travel writer. Yeah. So every time I go back, that kid is waiting for me. And um, I love Paris. And then Greece, where I lived for a year. I love well, Let Greece. me go back to the, When you eat in Paris, where do you go? Like, what, what, is, what kind of food are you eating there? Uh, really neighborhood places. Yeah. I mean, it could be you know, beef tech frites, steak frites. Um, or it could be uh, just, a, just a great local salad um, or fish, grilled fish. Uh, I just try to find little, either I go to really historic places that I just like to revel in the history, or I go to a really local place and just eat whatever the, the locals are, are eating. So I love those little tiny Speaking places. Speaking of local food, so your next place was Greece. I can only imagine right. the food there. Yeah. I, I mean, Greece I fell in love with, of course, when I lived there and I go back there and I'm just, all I need in Greece is, is a Greek salad. You get your feta cheese, your black olives, your cucumber, your tomato. I'm in heaven. Yeah. And then some great Greek bread and a little retzina on the side. And I'm just- It's amazing, I'm right? good. I can just stay here forever. The ultimate blue zone. Right? Yeah, exactly. You, you know the Dan Buettner, the blue zone? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I've, I've, loved, I've loved his work. Yeah. So Paris, Greece, and then Tokyo. And then, and then Japan, yeah, yeah, Tokyo. And of course, my wife's from Japan, so we go back to see her family, and that's got a really special meaning for me. Your father- 
retired early, didn't he? He did. He did indeed. Did he read You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think? <laughs> I'm not, not sure, sure if it was available yeah. then. Tell he me retired we, early. Yeah. And How his, early? His, well, that's a good question. And what was early back then? Well, that's... I'm. As I said that, I was thinking, so really, what does that mean? I think it was like 60, probably, or 61 or 62. Yeah, okay. And the retirement age was 65. So it wasn't super early. But pretty early. But early. Yeah. Earlier than his peers. And his what he said was, I'm healthy. I want to travel. And you know, my wife's healthy. My mom, his wife is healthy. So let's go. Let's, I'm good. Uh, and he made sure, he was an accountant. So he made super sure that they had enough money yeah. to last for the time they would need the money. And then they loved cruises and they just started cruising, just cruising and cruising, cruising and, cruising. and cruising. Yeah. And I'd get these wonderful like postcards from places and it was just amazing. And then when I became the travel editor, I was actually able to, to cruise with them sometimes or to arrange some nice things for my mom and dad. And, but I, I know that I inherited that from from them, that sense of the wonder of travel and just how much fun it is to get out there and see things you're not familiar with and embrace the unfamiliar. So once they started, they really embraced it. He, he hadn't been a big traveler prior to that because you was right. You didn't. You went to Canada and Virginia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They did. He discovered that, though. Yeah, he discovered that. And he did give me my first trip. They gave me my first trip abroad, which was they took me when I knew I was going to Paris for the summer, in the spring, they took me and my brother to London and Paris. That was my first trip abroad. Yeah. And um, I just fell in love with both of them. I just fell in love with the whole thing. You know, Even in the airport, my mother remembers I was running around. I was so excited. I was talking to everybody. I was like interviewing people. I was just having the time of my life just being excited about going there. And then once I got there, I just couldn't, they couldn't keep me down. So it was a part of my life. But it was somehow from them, I think, because my dad, it had been a long goal of his to retire early see the and world. go out and see the world and have a good time while he was healthy. And for 25 years, they were able to do that. So he traveled till his mid-80s. his mid-80s, oh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Prior to the internet, prior to social media, we've had this new world of yeah. travel and writing. Uh, better or worse? <laughs> yeah, just different. Okay. I wouldn't say better is, or worse, but how is it different? So, so many ways. But one of the ways I think is that people feel like they know the world better than they really do now. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, you, you feel yeah. like you've been everywhere because your friend's Instagram post is bringing you to wherever, Sicily and, or Papua New Guinea or wherever. And so you think, oh, well, I've kind of been there. But, of course, the reality is you've not been there. And when you actually do go to Papua New Guinea and you're on the ground there, you look around and go, oh, my goodness, I did not know this is what it was. I thought it was more like the Instagram thing that I'd seen. So I think there's a, a false sense of people being well traveled because digitally they've they're well virtually they've traveled a lot wow. 
They've watched their friends go places and they feel like they've been there. Have you ever haven't. written about that? No, I actually haven't. That's so true though. It's now that I think about it, you're right. It feels like we think well, it's almost like the false sense of connection with social media. Right. Absolutely. Totally different than actual human connection. Right. Your See, friend is on some far flung beach sending back these amazing Instagram photos and you think, Yeah, I've kind of been to that beach. I've done that now. What you what you're not seeing is, you know, all of the stuff that's not in the photo, which is what the real world is which, all about. The, it's the place, the belt store that, that you Absolutely, remember. right? Yeah, not exactly. the, the picturesque, yeah. Exactly. What about, though, then the industry that, I mean, you spoke to a group today. Right. Uh, some aspiring and uh, travel writers. First of all, I don't ever know who to trust, right? It's, it's right. There's so many. What do you tell them today? Right. Mainly what or I an, on any given day, and you sit down with a newer writer. What are you telling them? Um, one, just be honest. Uh, report the good and the bad. One of the huge problems I think with so much social media and just online travel writing in general is that there's a lot of fluff and a lot of oh, I want to make this seem as dreamy and wonderful as possible, and. It's great to actually get the wonder of a place, but you actually have to present the whole picture. And I, I always think as a travel writer, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm, my job is to educate my, my reader. And that means what's not so great about this place as well as what's great about it. So that's really, really important. The other thing I told them that I love is that accuracy is really important in travel writing. And you can only write about a place as well and deeply as you have lived it. So your first assignment as a travel writer is to live incredibly deeply, which means really paying attention wherever you are yeah. and asking yourself, what am I smelling here? What am I hearing here? What am I tasting? How does this food taste? How would I describe this? What am I feeling? You know, if I'm, what's the texture of this tree? The more you do that, the more you really deeply understand your experience, the better you can share that with somebody else. If you just say, I went by a field and it was full of flowers, and you tell me that, I don't see anything. Yeah. If you say, I went by a field the size of a, of a soccer field, and it was full of red and purple poppies, well, now I've got a visual. Yeah. And the more details like that that you can fill out your, your perception with, the better you'll be able to describe it to me later. You ran Lonely Planet, right? I was a global ed travel editor. Okay, well, there were so other people really running it, but, but you were running, I had you, a good gig. You were ahead of the writers, right? Yes, yeah. That model was you send folks out to go learn and then write, or were they living there? And I'm thinking about the Fromers model versus the Lonely Planet model. You, the way you guys did it was how? We sent people out. Sent, sent them yeah, out. Yeah, we did not. And they not... would stay for how long? Like, how are you supposed to get in? Like, how long does it take to get to smell it. Well, that's a real art. I mean, that I, and I've never been a guidebook writer, and I'm in awe of really great guidebook writers because it's, and Pauline, of course, is, is the queen of this, but Pauline Fromer, Pauline yeah, Fromer yeah. is the queen. But um, you go to a place and you have to have these incredibly attuned antenna that are just out picking up everything immediately. And you think about it, you go to a, wherever you go, you go to Memphis and there's 20 hotels. How are you going to differentiate one hotel from the other? How do you do that? And so you're, you're really attuned to these little details that will help a reader decide, oh, that's the place for me, not that place. And so this is what guidebook writers do that I'm in awe of, is they're just constantly sweeping in these details that will allow them to write 
deeply about a place so that I understand restaurant A is different from restaurant B in these ways and restaurant B is the one for me. Yeah. And that's a real, real art. So we would send our people out there. We would give workshops on how to do that. We would talk about make your writing count, make every single word count. Um, you know, you've got 50 words to get the essence of this restaurant. So every word has to really matter. Pull its weight. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and be honest and be thorough. And that was really fun. And I still think that's a travel writers today have to keep that in mind. What are your favorite resources today? What should our audience be reading today about if they're going to go to Europe, if they're going to go to Asia, what should, be, where should they be? Yeah. Who can they trust? Part of right. So I, I mean, I think you can really trust the seasoned travel experts. So the Lonely Planets and the Fromers and the, the established guidebooks, I still really highly recommend those to yeah. go to those. That's a big, good source of, of knowledge. But then you can also go online and Google whatever and, and get a lot of people's different perspectives on this place. And some of them you'll read and go, that wasn't very helpful. But others you'll read and go, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to write that down. And I think it's kind of a gut thing Yeah. on, on one level. Who do you trust? Is, is this person only saying really wonderful, you know, I had this amazing lunch. I had this amazing dinner. I mean, are they kind of clearly paying off people who have been nice to them? And, and you can sense that and, and get that. And then also there are all sorts of local, there are local bloggers. So there's a, people who live in Paris who blog in English and you can read yeah. them and get a different take or or there are local newspapers that may be published in English or have an English language version. Uh, so I, I go the whole gamut of available resources and try to look at them all and get as much as I can before I go. Can you trust, can I trust, we trust a, I mean, TripAdvisor? I mean, are those real reviews or are they really fake? Yeah, uh, I think that's a really good question. I use TripAdvisor uh, sometimes. And, yeah. and, and I think what I do is if there's, you know, 500 reviews of a hotel and 475 are saying it's really great, then I think, okay, this must be a really great place. Okay. Cause you can't, inv I don't think you can invent 475 reviews. Well, probably you can, but I choose to believe that you don't. Yeah. Um, so if there's like an overwhelming abundance of of, of reviews one way or the other, I tend to sort of think, okay, that, that's legitimate. Mostly legit, yeah. But I only use it to that extent. I don't really put all of my trust in, a, in any of those places. When you came to Memphis, how did you figure out where to stay? Oh, so the conference put me up. Oh, that's right, because you're a speaker. Right, I'm a speaker. You had no choice. So I had no choice. <laughs> they told me where to stay. Got it. Right. But I went yesterday to the Peabody which is this wonderful historic hotel. Yeah. And I thought, oh, if I ever come back here. That's where I stayed. Oh, yeah, yeah really? It was, that's it fantastic. Wonder, and it's very indicative of how I think of Memphis when I leave here is that it's just unrenovated and it's just right. very original. And it just, in, good, in every good and bad way, I noticed on the elevators, which four elevators really, they're quick yeah. to get an elevator. And I noticed when you walk out of this particular elevator that it has this, brass type of beading around it oh, this is brass inlay that comes all around it but it is clearly a thin piece of brass as it's uh, like almost trampled down oh, right. over, the years. over the years but, but right. it gives it this patina of like it's been there it's like right. truly been around yeah yeah and it gives the and i've, I've noticed that we went to 
a wonderful uh, restaurant last night. Uh, same thing. It just felt like it's been there. And it was. It was an old movie. Forever, thing. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. As we wrap here today, what about adventure travel versus like luxury travel? Do you do both? Do you tell people to just do both? What do you like better? I, I do a lot of both. And I actually now, I lead trips, which is oh, a, new, a new thing in my portfolio. I lead trips for National Geographic, and I lead trips for a wonderful, wonderful adventure travel company called Geographic Expeditions. I lead trips for both. And what I love about those trips is um, people who are a little bit timid about getting out into the world can take a group trip like that. Everything's taken care of. You, all of your worries just evaporate because you've <laughs> got somebody worries. taking care of you. And you've also got an expert who's going to show you things that you'd never be able to see on your own and teach you stuff that you'd never be able to learn on your own. So I really love that process. And I feel like as a travel writer, I've been writing for thousands and thousands of people in my articles. When I'm a tour leader, I'm really a travel writer, but I have a readership of eight people. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm talking to them saying- Where are you taking people? Where are your trips going to be? Uh, for, for geographic expeditions, I go to Japan and Mexico. Okay. And for National Geographic, I go to Greece and Italy and Switzerland and France and Japan. So you do that through National Geographic. Right. And how many trips a year are you leading? I'm leading three for National Geographic and I'm leading five for, for GOX. How do people end up doing that? Are they choosing you or are they just sign up for National Geographic trip and they happen to get... They can, Dr. well, so they, on the National Geographic website, it tells you which, which experts, we're called experts, which experts are on which trip. So you can click on my photo and it'll tell you the dates of the trips that I'm leading. And what are those trips called again? Guided? What are they called? Uh, what they call them guided adventures, I think, probably National Geographic. Through National Geographic. Right, Geographic, right. Geographic. Right. The last question, I get this, I had this. I don't know how I got on the list, but every six months I get the this booklet, this wonderfully colorful booklet from National Geographic that advertises the round the world trips. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably costs like twenty dollars for them to print this thing. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I had a, a caller into my radio show a couple of years ago. I call. I still to this day I call around the world Robin uh, because she was asking how to pay for one of these giant. You know, it was like a hundred thousand dollars. It's a hundred thousand. Yeah. And you go around the world, but. Just tell me about, tell our audience a little bit about that. What is the round the world trip for National Geographic like? They now offer, I think, three or four different versions of it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I was supposed to be a leader on the trip in 2020 and it got canceled. So I haven't done it myself, but I know a lot of my friends have done, well, so, some of my friends have done it. And um, it's amazing. You go, to, it's like the world's greatest hits, basically. Yeah. So you go to Egypt and you go to the, you land in a private airport and they take you off and they process your passport right there and you get in a van and you go to the pyramids and you have a private tour of the pyramids and you spend the night at some amazing hotel right near the pyramids. Next morning you get up and you get on the plane and you go to Easter Island and you land at the airport and they process you and you go and you visit you know, the stone statues on Easter Island. And you've got experts you know, like me, other experts are with you telling you what you're seeing and what you're doing. You have an amazing meal at Easter Island. You spend the night in an amazing hotel in Easter Island. Next morning, you're back on the plane and you go and you just you go around the world doing this. The world's greatest hits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How amazing would that be? Give me two more spots on the round the world trip. I'm just like, keep going. Give me two more. 
more. Right. Only $100,000. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Egypt, what's another? Where? Uh, so you go to Japan, you would yeah. go to Mount Fuji, you'd go to Kyoto. Um, let's Amazing. see, you go to South America. South America, you go to Machu Picchu. Yeah. Really, it's almost literally the world's greatest hits. Oh if you think God. of you go to Angkor Wat, you go to Machu Picchu. For only a hundred grand. Only a hundred grand? So if you can How pay could you for not it, do it? If you can pay for it, it sounds worth it. Right. Let's see here. Last quick question, lightning round. Your favorite trip, not just the wall. I know you said uh, Paris and uh, Greece and Tokyo, but just a little trip someone can, should consider today that they probably haven't done. Um. This is, I'm not sure this is little enough, but for, I, I recently went to Chiapas in Mexico for the first Chiapas. Chiapas. C-H-I-A-P-A-S. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chiapas in Mexico for the first time. It's way down in southern Mexico on the Guatemala border. And it was just amazing. It opened my eyes to a part of Mexico I'd never, ever seen before. A lot of Maya culture there, a lot of ruins that we went to one ruin that literally nobody was there. We were just stumbling around this ruin by ourselves. You walk right up to the, you're touching the ruin. It's like, yeah. oh my. So that was really incredible for me. And it was, I felt like I know Mexico. And then I got there, I was like, I don't know Mexico. It was very, very eye-opening to me. And it feels easy to do. It's not that far away. Mexico is, is our neighbor. So that was a real revelation for me. That was fantastic. I loved that. Well, you're, you really are an inspiration to a whole new generation of travel writers. And it's, um, I know that they've loved having you here. I, we've loved having you here Thanks. on the Retire Sooner podcast. The, the, the education we get from travel I think it's refreshed my mind that it's just, it's unrivaled. There's yeah. nothing like it. We think we know the world. We don't know the world. Right. And I think that Don George reminded us uh, of that today. So God bless you <laughs> and thank you. Thank you. I've loved talking with you. Thank you very much. And, and happy travels to all of your listeners. <laughs> hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.